Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians will be in chapter 3 this morning as we continue our study in this book. And today we'll be continuing a thought that Paul introduced to us last week. He introduced the idea of justification by faith. And we're going to add a little but important descriptor, justification by faith alone in Galatians chapter 3. Justification by faith alone. As we walk through this passage together, we will see that we are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. Somehow I've lost connection here. Can you uh, advance that next slide? I'd appreciate that. Thank you. Galatians 3, we'll read together verses 1 through 9. We'll be going down through verse 14 together today. So Galatians 3, verse 1, Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what we have here in chapter 3 is a shift in focus. So for chapters 1 and 2, Paul has been really defending his authority as an apostle. He's been defending the idea that he has the right to speak authoritatively into the life and doctrine of the church. Well, in chapter 3, he really gets to the heart of his message, and this is it. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. You add anything to that, and you no longer have the gospel. So chapters 3, 4, and then in chapter 5 really get to the heart of his message. And then at the end of the book, he gets on really what the fruit of that message is. But this morning, as we jump into this book, I'd like to take us a little trip back in time, several centuries to the early 16th century. Now, this is not the most famous man in church history, but he's linked to a famous man. Johann Tetzel, Tetzel entered Germany in 1516. He was sent there by the Pope. You see, it was time to build the St. Pe Peter's Basilica in Rome. A very expensive project, and they needed to raise money. So what better way to raise money than send someone out into all the little provinces and collect money? So Tetzel enters Germany, and he's selling something called an indulgence. Now, y'all are sitting here, and most people sitting here at some level claim to have a relationship with faith in Christ. Perhaps you don't. We'd love to introduce him to you. But if you do, if you're here and you're someone who knows God through faith in Christ, at some level we recognize that part of our responsibility is then to take that faith in and live it out. But even the best of us got to admit, we got a lot of baggage. I mean, the best person sitting here has things in their past, history, potentially thoughts, fears, things they've experienced this week that... If we displayed it for everyone to see, it would be pretty embarrassing. And so even the best of us doesn't really have that much goodness. So what we need is we need credit that we can draw on. 
And so the Catholic Church came up with this, this idea called a treasury of merit. So y'all aren't that great, but there have been some pretty good people around. So people like Jesus Christ, Paul, Peter, James, and John, these guys were so good that not only could they earn salvation themselves through their own goodness, they banked up credits that we can get. And so if you give us a gift, we'll exchange and we'll give you some of these credits. In fact, for a nominal donation of $1,000 to our elevator project, you too can purchase some of their righteousness. <laughs> See how this works. So they're going around and Tetzel walks in and he preaches. By the way, that's not true. This doesn't work this way. And he's saying that you can purchase goodness, not for yourself, but, you know, you know Grandpa. He had some warts. We hope he's in heaven, but we're not sure. And if you don't make a donation, then you can buy his way to heaven. And so he went around with what's known as an indulgence coffer. And he had a little jingle. The moment the coin and coffer rings, that soul from purgatory springs. You too can buy your way to heaven. Well, this led to Martin Luther's 95 Theses. It was about this issue, this idea that you could buy your way to heaven or someone else's way to heaven. But brothers and sisters, this is not true. And that idea wasn't new in the 16th century because it's the same thing that Paul is battling here in the first century. And it didn't fade away in the 16th century because we have our own ways and our own ideas of adding to what Jesus has done. And Paul says it's justification by grace through faith in Christ. That's it, alone. You can't add anything to this. If you do, if you attempt to add anything to it, you rob the true gospel. And not only do you take away from it, you no longer have the gospel at all. So this is the conversation we find ourselves in in Galatians chapter 3. And Paul introduces us to a sort of conundrum in verses 1 and 2. Or you might say he gives us a test to see if you are a spiritual idiot. Paul's such a flatterer. Look how he begins in verse 1. Oh foolish Galatians. And then verse 3. Are you so foolish as or as one translation accurately, yet a little more bluntly puts it, oh, idiots of Galatia. What makes an apostle use such strong language? Look at that question in verse 1. Who has bewitched you? Well, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul said that the, that the church was guilty of spiritual desertion. I am astonished, verse 6, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So now he adds to that charge, your spiritual deserters, and he says, you're also idiots. This kind of stupidity could make sense only if you were under a spell. Now, it's been a number of decades since it was around, but in the mid-60s, there was a popular television show called Bewitched. And the whole premise of the show was that the wife was a good witch, and her husband would go around doing stupid things, and she would blink at him, and it would bewitch him, and he wouldn't do those stupid things. He would act as if he were under her spell. And Paul's saying, who has blinked at you and put you under a spell that you're acting this way? The only good explanation for thinking this is the idea that you're under a spell. Because verse 1, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul isn't saying 
that these people were there and saw Jesus crucified, literally. Rather, he's saying, you heard the gospel so clearly that there's no way you could have missed it. You heard with your ears, you saw with your own eyes, I was there. The clear gospel was taught clearly. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, the gospel of Jesus is so powerful that it makes it impossible to think there could be any other way of being right with God apart from this message. Paul's saying, why would God go to all of this trouble if it were possible that you could fix your own problems? Why would God send his son to be crucified if you could save yourself? I mean, could you think it's actually possible to be right with God through your good works? You see, it's impossible to receive the true gospel, the gospel that says we're sinners who can't save ourselves, and also think we're good people who can add to what Christ has done. And Paul gives us a test in verse 2 to help us figure out if this is how we think. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So this is the key question in this section. In other words, the test for how you can know you receive Christ is how you receive the Spirit. There's a link between these two. Well, what does it mean to receive the Spirit? Well, in the book of Acts, most famously in Acts chapter 2, we have the day of Pentecost. The coming of the Spirit is accompanied by powerful signs, speaking in tongues, powerful wind that sounds like a storm, like a rushing of a freight train, tongues, flames of fire over people's heads, 3,000 people coming to faith in Christ. Well, I've never experienced anything like that. We don't normally see the Spirit come in power quite like that. So what do we see? Well, Ezekiel 36 tells us that a mark of God's new covenant is that he puts his Spirit within us. God places his spirit in his people, and how do we know that the spirit lives in us? Again, Ezekiel 36, he causes us to walk in God's statutes to be careful to obey his rules. In other words, there are moments, like at Pentecost, where God shows up miraculously and powerfully and just blows your mind. But the more typical and ordinary way that the Spirit of God works is through internally transforming the character of God's people. Reflecting their character reflects the nature of Christ. Galatians 5 makes this transformation a major theme in the book of Galatians. It might be the most famous passage in this letter. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is the evidence of the power of the Spirit. That is the evidence that you've received Christ by faith. Or, as Jesus put it in John chapter 3, you cannot see the wind. You can, however, see what the wind does, what it produces. You can see the tree move. In other words, right now, you can't see the breath coming out of my mouth, but you can see the evidence of that breath. And Paul is saying that the evidence that the Spirit of God lives in you is what it produces in you. The kind of character, the kind of life-shaping 
function it has in your life. So we'll come back to this question in a few minutes, but I want you to consider, what does the fruit of your life say about the presence of the Spirit of God in your heart? Well, how do we receive this Spirit? Verse 14 answers clearly, we receive the promised Spirit through faith. In other words, we come to Christ, turn from our sin, and place our faith in him. And the Spirit of God enters our hearts through faith in Christ. You see, you cannot possess the Spirit if you don't receive the Son by faith. Well, what then is the remedy for spiritual idiocy? Well, like many things in life, it starts with asking the right questions. Verse 3, are you so foolish? Well, where does their stupidity lie? Or having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, there's this idea that God saves us through faith in Christ, sends his Spirit to us, and then we sort of separate the rest of our life from that moment, and we walk according to our flesh. Here he's not saying so much like sinful flesh. He's saying in the power of your flesh, in your, on your own, separate from the Spirit. So we have a contrast. It's how we begin our life and how we continue our life. How we initiate life in Christ and how we complete the life we have in Christ. Now, he says everyone agrees we begin by the Spirit. Well, how do we finish? How do we complete the race? And the first argument that Paul points to is the reality of our personal experience. What it is that we experience when we come to Christ. Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now this word translated suffer in verse 4 is often translated suffering as things that you suffer, but it can also be used more generally to talk about things you experience. It can be used either way. In fact, depending on what translation you're using, about half of translations go either way, to suffer or to experience. And I believe, really, this is speaking more generally to the idea of experiencing something because the context is talking about the positive, powerful working of the Spirit. Verse 4, did you experience so many things? In verse 5, what kind of experiences is he talking about? The one who supplies the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do this by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, if you're a follower of Christ, you have experienced the powerful working of God in your heart. You've placed your faith in Christ. You've felt the conviction of God's Spirit. You've experienced the breath of life entering your dead soul. So is it possible to experience all of that, that life-giving power of God, and then set it aside and say, thanks God for that, now I'm going to live my life. Paul says this is impossible, and this deception didn't die in the first century. There's an idea that says, we need God to save us. We need that ticket. But then we can live the rest of our life how we want. We can sort of separate that moment from the life we have in Christ. But what Paul is saying is the moment the Spirit of God enters our life through faith in Christ, he walks through the rest of life with us. You can't separate this moment from a life lived in the power of God's Spirit. The Jews at some level seem to believe, well, we pray a prayer, and then we go back to living life as Jews. Here it looks more like 
we pray a prayer and then we go back to living our version of the Charleston dream. Having a job that's good enough to pay for the weekend that we want. Day on the boat, day at the beach. If the programs at church are entertaining enough, we may consider that as an option. But we got our life. We want extracurriculars for our kids. You know, we want them to grow up with a full, well-rounded version of our Charleston dream. But any non-Christian can have that life, and they do. We might ask with Paul, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? There are a lot of professing believers whose lives look pretty much the same pre-spirit and post-spirit. And if life in the Spirit for you looks looks like life without the Spirit, the question is, do you have the Spirit? So Paul points us to the reality of our personal experience. Have you experienced the miraculous working of the Spirit of God in you, turning your heart of stone to a heart of flesh? A hard heart to a heart that's tender to the Word of God. Have you moved from dead man walking to spiritually living person guided by God's Spirit submitted to God's Word? Because that's where Paul points us next. The reality of our personal experience can't ever be separated from the authority of God's word. God reveals his will in redemptive history. Now Genesis 12, 15, and 17 tell us the record of God's covenant with Abraham. This covenant has three major components. First, in Genesis 12, verse 1, you have a promised land. God tells Abraham, leave your land and go to the land that I have promised you, the land that I will show you. The second component is there's a promised people in verse 2, and I will create from you a great nation. And the third thing is a promise of future blessing, redemption, and in you all nations of the earth will be blessed. So we have these things, land, people, promised redemption, all in Genesis chapter 12. Well, this covenant is repeated in Genesis 15, and it's escalated. It's there that God tells Abraham, look up, look at the stars of heaven, And count them. And your descendants will be more in number than all these stars. Anything that you could see or imagine. Now the Jews think God is talking about Israel. And in one sense he is. But Romans 11 tells us the fulfillment of this promise is in the truer and greater Israel. When the Gentiles are grafted into God's people by faith. So the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham is actually... People placing faith in Christ and receiving the promised blessing. As this promise comes to Abraham in Genesis 15, Genesis 15, 6 tells us that Abraham believed what God said and it was counted to him, credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was a child of God not because of his physical birth. Not because of what he did. He became a child of God through faith. Faith in the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And now Galatians 3, 6 quotes from Genesis 15 and says, we become children of God the same way. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so also you become a child of God, believing God, and it's counted to you as righteousness. Faith and faith alone. You see, it's not the physical descendants of Abraham who are his true children. 
Rather, verse 7 tells us, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Well, where does this idea come from? Verse 8 says it's from the scripture. This comes from the mind of God to the mind of man. You see, personal experience is an important component in our relationship with Christ. But our personal experience can never be separated from the authority of God's word. See, personal experience can carry some weight, but it can't carry ultimate weight. It must always be submitted to what God has taught us in his word. Our faith and our living must ultimately be rooted in and submitted to the word of God. So what does scripture teach? Verse 8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. The verse 8 tells us that the promise to Abraham thousands of years before, in Genesis chapter 15, is a promise that we would come to faith in Christ. It's a promise of the gospel. So there's this promise in God's word rooted in redemptive history. So how does it move from this place in history? How does it come to us? Verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We enter God's family by faith. And we walk with God's family by faith in God's promises. See, personal experience is important, but it must always be submitted to the word of God. It's the scriptures that govern us. So we can believe at some level that we've experienced salvation, but if we hold the experience of our life up to the light of God's word and it doesn't match, it is not God's word that is mistaken. It's our experience. It's our understanding of what we've experienced. This is true for us as a church, too. We can't go through life tipping our hat to God's word and then setting it aside when it's time for us to work out our business as a church. You see, God's word is supreme in our worship service. So if you come to attend Ashley River Baptist Church, we want you to recognize quickly that we are people Sinners at the foot of the cross, just seeking to be obedient to our good Father. Living out his word. So last week, someone different ministers the same word. Jake faithfully preaches this word. Because it's not in a person. We don't submit to people. We submit to the uh, creator, the one who has spoken. But this isn't true just for our worship services. This is true for business meetings committee meetings, life during the week. I mean, we, we can't take God's here, God, God's word here. The Bible stands, it'll stand forever, and then set it aside and then live the rest of our life as a church as if it doesn't exist. This, not our bylaws, is our set of marching orders. This, not our bylaws, reveals to us the words of life, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. This, not any other document, is the sufficient, living, breathed word of God. This, not any other book, is the power of God breathed out 
through the writers of men as the Holy Spirit moved in them. This is our document. This is our book. No other book. If our meetings are more concerned with the policies and procedures in our bylaws than with living out the character and commands of this book, then we have gone astray. This is true of matters of governance, leadership, and oversight, but it's also true for member care and church discipline. God is clear in how we care for and pursue those who go astray. So the exercise Paul takes these believers through is remembering their personal experience. Have you not experienced the working of God in your life? And then he says, submit it to the word of God. Hold that experience up alongside the word of God itself. And this is how we roll too. We hold our personal conversion stories alongside the word of God. And we hold our church life and experience alongside the word of God. It's a combination of the Spirit's work in us with the Spirit-inspired Word of God that guides us. But our experience is always submitted to the Word, never the other way around. So Paul presents the problem and then the cure. And then he sets up a vital contrast. He says there's a fate that awaits each of us. Verses 10 through 14. Let's pick up there, we'll read it together. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not by abide all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So in verses 6 through 9, Paul is arguing for justification by faith alone. In verses 10 through 14, he argues against the possibility of being justified by works. And he sets up a vital contrast. One reason our gospel mission isn't more urgent in our minds is because we don't live with the ever-present reality that an eternal fate awaits every person. Damnation for some, deliverance for others. Or as Paul puts it here, every person will be cursed or turn to Christ. The idea that we're good people who can do okay in God's eyes if we just live a good life. It's not a nice way to get people to act like good, upstanding people. It's actually a damnable heresy that leads to people being eternally cursed under the justice of a holy God. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed, be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul's quoting from Deuteronomy 27. God gives the law and he gives 12 curses for those who fail to keep the law. So what's the point? Well, we've got the Jews here looking over at the Gentiles, quoting Deuteronomy 27 and saying, Cursed are you if you don't keep God's law. And then Paul takes God's word and he holds it up like a mirror in front of the Jews. He says, cursed are you if you don't keep God's law. See, God's word is like a mirror. It shows us our character and shows us the character of God. 
if you rely on your own goodness, Paul says, you will be cursed. You will die in your sin because your goodness can never be good enough. Now, I don't own a boat. I'm not much of a sailor, but I've been on boats with a few people. Now, I want you to imagine with me that you're in a boat this morning. And your boat is taking on water. Now, it might take on water for one day or two days or 70 years or 90 years or one year. But it's slowly taking on water and you're in this boat. Now, this boat, actually, the more water it takes on, feels more stable. Because when it sits real high, it rocks in the water. But as it begins to sit lower, it's like, this is stabling out. But what's the fate of that boat? It will sink. Now, it may take one year or two years or 75 years, but that boat will sink. That's the boat we're all born in. It's the boat relying on our own goodness. And that boat can feel safe. It's, it's, it's the boat you know. And the more idea of your own sanctity, your own goodness that you take on, the better you feel. But brothers and sisters, that boat will sink. And along comes Christ, and he says, step into this boat. Now, this boat rides high in the water. We look over there, and it takes some faith, you might say, to leave this boat, the boat of self-reliance, the boat of my own goodness, the boat of being a good Baptist, the boat of being a good person, of being a good citizen, a good soldier, a good mom, a good dad, a good person, and stepping over into this boat that says, I'm none of those things. I'm not good. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does good. There is no one who seeks God. This boat makes me unstable. It erodes everything I want to believe about myself. But this boat is the way of salvation. You cannot stand over here and hold on to all of these things that will sink your boat and look over there at Christ and say, that's nice, without dying in this boat. But there are churches full of people clinging to the idea of their own goodness. Clinging to their denominational identity. Clinging to the idea that there are good works that they have done. Things that demonstrate they're not like those sinners in that boat. They're the good people in this boat. But Paul says the people in this boat are under a curse. The curse that awaits all people who do not turn to faith in Christ. There is one hope and only one hope for us all. And Paul tells us that is Christ. Paul says you may be a spiritual idiot, but there is hope even for spiritual idiots. Verse 11 quotes Habakkuk 2 verse 4. The righteous will live by faith. You see, salvation through faith in Christ has always been God's plan. It's not something that Paul came up with. It's not that God suddenly realizes, oh, I created the law, and these people can't keep the law, so I better come up with a plan B. No, the law serves a vital function. The law is a teacher to show us that we cannot be good, that we cannot keep God's law. The law itself is a bright, shining arrow pointing to Christ. Christ is the point of the law. What's the basis of the law? How can the law do you any good? Obedience. In other words, if you obey the law, 
You can live under the mercy of the law. But if you don't, look out. I mean, if you're driving down Savannah Highway, goes from 45 to 35. Well, I don't know, if you're giving yourself a little benefit of the doubt and you're cruising along at 51 and you hit the 35, what happens? Woo, woo, woo. You see, if you live at the mercy of the law, you have to obey the law. And if you don't obey the law, the law will condemn you. So you might say it this way, you live by the law or die by the law. But the catch is this, no one lives by the law. We all die under the law. To attempt to live is to die by the law. God says, be holy as I am holy. God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. No exceptions. God says, love your neighbor like you love yourself. God says, don't covet. So here's the problem. We're all cursed. Because we're all lawbreakers. So how does God give hope to cursed people? Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. There's this great exchange. We are cursed, condemned under our sin, but Christ becomes a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, Christ, not cursed. We are cursed, yet Christ becomes cursed so that we might become like Christ. In Christ, we can have life. In Christ, God exchanges our sin for his righteousness. Christ becomes a curse so that through him we might have life. Verse 14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Remember all those promises? Land, people, redemption. The promises God made to Abraham, they come to us. In the end, we get the inheritance. The promised blessing is ours through Christ. Christ gets the curse. We get all the blessing. We get life. We get an inheritance and we get the spirit of God. Now, several minutes ago, I asked us this question. What does the fruit of our lives tell us about the presence of the spirit of God in our hearts? It's true that in any congregation, there are professing believers who don't know Christ. That's true in every church. We know that based on Jesus' teaching and also through personal experience. But it's not true in every congregation that it's the regular practice of a number of people to live like they don't know Jesus. You see, the question for us today isn't that I pray a prayer. The question isn't, am I a member of this church? The only question that matters is, do I have a personal relationship with God through faith in Christ. How do we know if that's true? Have you ever heard of the duck test? The duck test is a logic or reasoning test. It's a very simple way of teaching people like how to reason. In other words, if you see something and it looks like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, and it swims like a duck, you can reasonably conclude it is a duck. In fact, if you Google duck test and 
pull up the Wikipedia page, you'll find this picture. A mallard shown swimming, looking like a duck. I thought that was funny. It's obviously a duck. It's shown looking like a duck because it is a duck. But there are professing Christians who don't swim and quack like Christians. The Spirit of God doesn't reside in them. It's not merely a matter of needing to get back to church. We don't go to church because there's something magical about going to church. We gather with God's people for worship because that's how God's people swim. It's what it means to be a Christian. And some professing Christians are not comfortable swimming like ducks. Because they're not ducks. Genuinely Christian conversation makes them uncomfortable. They like sending thoughts, but they're not comfortable praying and communing with the living God. They like activities, entertaining programs. True discipleship? Not so sure about that. They hear the preached word and wonder, what gets these people so worked up? You see, the evidence of faith in Christ is a life lived in Christ by the power of God's Spirit. That's what it means to swim and look and quack like a Christian. Or to quote Galatians 3 in our own context, all who rely on the idea of being a Christian apart from faith in Christ are under a curse. But the righteous shall live by Remember our boats? There are some people sitting in this sinking boat looking at that boat and saying, oh yes, I believe in Jesus. But they have never left this boat. They have never stopped relying on their background, their culture, their experience, their family, and entered in to Christ. You see, it's one thing to believe in Jesus. It's another thing to believe in to Jesus. And Paul is saying, those who have faith in Christ live their lives in Christ. Genuine faith produces a genuine life. Oh, friend, I'm not saying this to shame or embarrass anyone but a fate awaits every one of us. And if you are here apart from genuine faith in Christ, would you turn from your sin today? This boat cannot save you. Christ, Christ alone. Let's take a minute now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk 
with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now. Oh God, we thank you for Jesus, the one who lived the life we should live, died the death we deserve to die so that through him we might have life. Lord, I pray that you will help us understand what it means to place our faith in Christ, that we will enter fully into life with Christ, justified by faith in Christ alone. Lord, now we're going to sing and declare our Christ is our hope in life and death. Lord, I thank you that when we stand before you, Christ will be enough. In Jesus' name, amen.